So I picked up um, one of Jonathan's books, Dr. Sarfati's book, Refuting Evolu Evolution. The reason I picked this one up is because this is the best-selling creation science book of all time. How awesome is that? That's it? Is that awesome? Show the man some love and respect. Thank you very much. Um, I do own this one. It's a great book. Otherwise, it wouldn't have sold so many copies. But I wanted to steal a little bit of the bio in the back to read for you. Jonathan D. Sarfati, Ph.D., F.M., was born in Ararat. I wish I could stop right there. Have you found the ark? <laughs> Unfortunately, it's Ararat, Australia. I won't give anybody your birth year. He moved to New Zealand as a child, where he later studied mathematics, geology, physics, and chemistry at Victoria University in Wellington. He obtained honors level in physical and inorganic, and inorganic chemistry, as well as in condensed matter physics and nuclear physics. Dr. Serfati received his PhD in physical chemistry from the same institution in 95 on the topic of, now a bunch of words none of us know, spectroscopy or spectroscopy? How do you say it? Spectroscopy. The second way I almost said it right. Especially vibrational. He has co-authored various technical papers on such things as high temperature superconductors and sulfur and selenium containing ring and cage molecules as well as being very interested in formal logic and philosophy. We have that in common. I love philosophy and logic. But unfortunately, we do not have chess in common, which is good because you would have to beat me senseless. Because he represented New Zealand in three chess Olympiads and is a former New Zealand national chess champion. And the bio goes on. I've read enough. Introducing Dr. Sarfati. Well, thank you. Well, thank you for the warm welcome. I uh, appreciate uh, the, the nice introduction there. Um, here is where I come from, just so you can see just uh, for yourself where, I, where I'm from originally. And that is why I talk a bit differently from you guys. You might say I have a deep southern accent. Um, but have no worries. If you came past the book table, you would have noticed some DVDs, and they're all subtitled in American, so you can understand them as well. <laughs> And this is the sort of thing I was doing my PhD in. I used to shine laser light on selenium uh, ring molecules like this, and I published work in a specialist scientific journal. So I am a real scientist who believes the Bible, so don't let anyone uh, tell you otherwise. Um, now, I'm actually in America. I live in America now because we've got two little granddaughters living in Florida. Now, I am a chess master, as was said. I, I do this sometimes at creation camps playing chess. I played with some good people in my time. And just one more thing, my, I'm actually Jewish myself as well. Uh, my name is the Hebrew word for Frenchman. So I, don't, I, can't, I, can just, I can tell Jewish jokes as well as French jokes and get away with it, I hope. <laughs> now why a Jewish boy like me would believe in Jesus? Well, in fact, there's a video of mine called Jesus and Genesis. And uh, we're offering a special for Jesus and Genesis combined with a book called Messianic Christology, which shows how Jesus and only Jesus fulfilled the prophecies of the Hebrew Bible in his first coming. And some of those prophecies have an expiration date, so he must have come when he did. Now, of course, being uh, in creation ministries, a lot of my work nowadays is dealing with the theories of this man, Charles Darwin who is basically the pseudo-intellectual um, basis for the religion of this country, really, which is atheistic humanism. That's the religion taught in the government schools today. It's taught in, the, uh, in the, uh, Hollywood and the mass media as well. And Darwin gives it the intellectual underpinning, so they think, because Darwin had this idea that things could make themselves over millions of years without needing a creator. And you might remember uh, four years ago, we had the Darwin Bicentennial, and it was atheists and humanist groups that were celebrating. And it's a bit of a sad situation because uh, 
look at the, in the churches, most of the people in the churches, are, of course, they watch television, they, watch, they go to the government schools, and is it any wonder then uh, that there's a huge dropout rate in church youths? And one of the worst figures comes from the Southern Baptist there, but none of those figures is very encouraging. But let's face it, if we haven't got answers for, for what's being taught, is it any wonder that many kids leave the church when they leave home? So the, our ministry is really a family ministry to try to equip the church or try to try to equip families that we do have answers for the silly things that Darwin said. And one uh, of the resources we have is called uh, is our website creation.com. So you better take notes because it's hard to remember websites, I know. And this has about 9,000 articles on it. And it covers all sorts of different things. And every day it's updated. It has a good search engine. You can find different things. And the main things we talk about is, is creation true and does it matter? And just so you can get equipped with this and, and, and see what's on the uh, website and what's coming up and what creation speakers are in your area, I've actually got a free email newsletter uh, called Infobytes, and, and we just give you guys a chance to, to sign up for our free email mail, mail newsletter now. If the clipboards can come. Okay, thank you. Totally free. We promise not to spam you and we won't give your address out to any third party. And it comes out about once a week. So, this I think you find very helpful. Also, you can send it to your friends because if something comes up in the news media, like things like, well, why did uh, God design a stingray to kill the, the famous crocodile hunter? Okay. Well, we had an article about that and it went viral. People used our infobytes and sent an email to the, on, and we could tell that it was going viral because a number of people were watching, looking at our, the article that we wrote about that. So, a very good witnessing tool we had. Now, to show you how evolution and Darwinism connect to each other so strongly, well, you think of this man, Richard Dawkins from Oxford University. He's been speaking at the um, university in this state, and he wrote a book called The God Delusion, but he's also the world champion Darwinist. I mean, he wrote a book called The Greatest Show on Earth, The Evidence for Evolution. And one of my recent books is called The Greatest Hoax on Earth to try to refute the best arguments that people have for evolution. Because we try to address the best case against us and show it doesn't work. Most of the time, they don't address the best case of that we say and knock down straw men instead. Now, it's, I guess it's only fair, since you're going to be, might be asking me questions after the break, that I should ask you a question, just to get you thinking about these issues, why it's so important. Can you answer this one? What was Jesus' first miraculous act recorded in the Gospels? Yeah, um, that's the common answer. You see, water into wine in John chapter 2, it said this was the first sign to his disciples. It just says the sign to his disciple. It doesn't say it was his first miracle ever, because you go back a chapter, it tells us, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, but then it tells us, well, who is the Word here, first of all? You know that, don't you? Jesus, or Yeshua, as we say in Hebrew. And it tells us, through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. So you see, even before he was born, he is a creator of the universe. And John wrote his gospel so people might believe in Jesus and have eternal life. And he starts off showing that Jesus is God and creator. And this is why Darwinism is, is hardly a side issue because Darwinism basically says there's no need for a creator, which means there's nothing for Jesus to do. And it's pretty important that Jesus is the creator because we find uh, God speaking through prophets. I mean, I think Americans call him Isaiah, don't they? And Australians call him Isaiah. And the Hebrews are called, have it right because they call him Yeshayahu. So God spoke through Yeshayahu and said, I am the Lord or Jehovah or Yahweh, and apart from me there is no savior. So for Jesus to be savior, he must be Jehovah God himself. He can't be a created being if he's to be the savior. But he also must be fully man because he's a mediator between God and man. And a mediator should be a member of both groups he's mediating. So he's both fully God and fully man. Now, also the prophet Isaiah uh, talked about this future redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who repent of their sins. Now, the word in Hebrew, goel, means kinsman redeemer. It's the same word used in the book of Ruth. And the whole point of a kinsman redeemer is that he's related by blood to those whom he redeems. 
So for Jesus to be the kinsman redeemer of us all, he must be a blood relative of us. So how is this possible? Well, we see in the Gospels, Jesus' ancestry line has been traced. You see, now first of all, there's Matthew's Gospel. Matthew is writing to Jewish readers, and he traces Jesus back from the first Jew, Abraham, through King David, through this line here, the blue line, and ends up in Joseph, and there's a dotted line here because Joseph wasn't the biological father because Jesus was virgin born. He was the legal father. Now, Luke's gospel is different because he's tracing Mary's line, and you see, that's why I've got Luke going backwards through Mary, and it's in pink because she's a girl. So Luke goes backwards through Mary. Mary comes from King David through his son Nathan, and you see how Luke goes backwards through Abraham. Now, Luke was writing to Gentiles, though, so he doesn't stop at the first Jew. He goes back to where Abraham came from through people like Noah and then to Adam, who is called the son of God and not the son of an ape, you know. So you can't mix evolution and the gospel because Adam is said to be a direct creation of God. And he is the ancestor, a real historical ancestor of Jesus Christ. And he's the ancestor of all other people in the world as, uh, as well. So therefore, everyone on earth, no matter what race or people group you come from, you come from Adam. And therefore, you are related to Jesus Christ, who can therefore be your kinsman redeemer. So the Christian religion is a religion for all of humanity, because all of us come from Adam. But if you get rid of a historical Adam, you throw out the kinsman redeemer idea as well. So once again, this is no side issue that Jesus comes from Adam. And the thing is, some people try and tell you that Adam is a mythological person, but how could a myth be the ancestor of a real person? Makes no sense at all. Now, also we see the gospel itself and things that Jesus, Jesus said about things. First of all, let's look at what Jesus said about Scripture. He said it cannot be broken. Now, Genesis is part of Scripture, so therefore Genesis can't be broken, right? And he would often say, it is written, he would quote scripture, and that settled it. It is written, that's what God has said. God himself has spoken, the end of argument for Jesus. And you know what the word Bible stands for? Basic instructions before leaving earth. And to see the Bible really is a history book of the universe. Um, all the doctrines and morals in the Bible are connected with the history of the Bible. You can't separate them. For instance, marriage. Now, marriage is under attack these days. You've got the Supreme Court uh, saying that gay marriage is okay in this country. Australia, got, we've got our own problems in Australia and back in New Zealand as well. The thing is, what happened when Jesus was asked about marriage? Well, he goes back to where marriage began. He said, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Now, what's he quoting from here? He goes back to where God ordained marriage right in the first two chapters of Genesis. And he's quoting Genesis as real history here. And it's this real history that's the foundation of marriage. Now, you've got some of the liberals who say that Jesus said nothing about gay marriage. Excuse me, he's defining marriage here as a man and a woman. In fact, he said this is the way God originally made marriage, man and a woman, because God made Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. That's pretty clear. And you see, why does a man leave his father and mother? It's because the first man, Adam, had no father and mother. Now, why do the two become one flesh? It goes back to Eve being taken from Adam's flesh. So when you have the history of marriage, everything else makes sense. But if you abandon this history in Genesis, then marriage no longer has any foundation. So anything goes. And I think we're seeing the results of this. Now, let's look at the gospel. Now, Paul is the expert preacher of the gospel to the Corinthian church, and he defines it, he summarizes it here. He says that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Now you notice here, he's grounding the gospel in the whole of the scriptures. You can't separate the gospel from the rest of it because he goes on to tell us, for since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ will all be made alive. Now, 
the gospel, it means the good news, right? But Paul goes on to tell you, why do we need the good news? We have to have the bad news first. You see, why do we need a savior? It's because we're sinners. Now, where does sin come from? Paul goes on to tell us that sin came from our ancestor Adam, who committed a real sin, and part of the punishment for that was physical death. I mean, God told them, you were made from dust, now you're going to return to dust. That's physical death as part of the punishment there. And therefore, that is why Jesus came. God himself took on human nature so he could die on the cross and pay the penalty for sin. And then on the third day, he rose from the dead. Again, he rose physically from the dead. There was the grave clothes were there, but no body could be found. And in fact, if they could have found the body of Christ, that would have been the end of Christianity right from the start. They never could produce the body. The tomb was empty. He appeared to 500 people at once to show he was who he said he was, that God had accepted his sacrifice, that he really has paid for all uh, the sins that we will ever commit. You know, on the, the, on the cross, he said that uh, it is finished. That's three words in English. One word in Greek is tetelestai, which means um, paid in full. That was a word they used to stamp on the bills of debt in those days. And the tetelestai means paid in full. He's saying our sins are paid in full on the cross. But you see how Paul connects what Jesus did with what Adam did in the Garden of Eden. So you can't separate what happened in Genesis 3 from the gospel itself. And in fact, Jesus himself um, is called the last Adam. So once again, if you haven't got the first Adam, what happens to the last Adam? The gospel itself depends on what happened in Genesis. And this also helps to explain why there's death in the world. And that's a very common question, I think, is if there is a loving God, why is there so much death and suffering in the world? Well, the big picture here is that death and suffering are the result of sin, not the way God originally made things. The Bible is quite clear. It was Adam's sin that brought death into the world. Now, evolution says the opposite thing. Evolution tells us it was death that led to man, death of the unfit. Darwin said it very clearly. He talked about the war of famine and death that led to man. So again, how do you mix evolution and the Bible when evolution says death brought man and the Bible tells us it was the man that brought death? These are diametrically opposed to each other. And even the millions of years view has its problems. And just to explain, where do the millions of years come from? It came from the idea that the, the rock layers took very long to form. And of course, the rock layers contain fossils, and fossils mean dead things. So the problem with the millions of years view, look at this picture of the Garden of Eden here. So you've got this uh, Adam and Eve are created here. God says everything is very good at the end of creation week. And very emphatic there. Seven times he said it was good. The seventh time it was very good. I mean, he's trying to tell us something here, but when God finished creating, it was perfect. But you see, if the millions of years are true, it means this Garden of Eden here is on a pile of bones miles deep. That is a logical outcome of having millions of years. You're putting all this death before Adam. And in fact, you're not only putting death, you're putting all these diseases like you're having um, gout and osteoporosis and bone cancer. And all that is in the fossil record. And then God is saying, this is all very good. So bone cancer is all very good. Well, if bone cancer is very good, I don't, don't, what's very bad then? See, this is a big problem with the millions of years view. In fact, the Bible also tells us the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death is an enemy, an intruder. It's not the way God originally made things. We see, uh, again, in Romans, as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Again, we have this clear connection that death is the result of sin. And very simple, the wage of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Over and over again, we are seeing this connection that death is the punishment for sin. So my question for the millions of years people is to say, well, if death came before sin 
as the millions of years views tell us, how could Jesus' death pay for our sin? If death came before sin, it's therefore not the punishment for sin. It existed before sin. And therefore, Christ's death could not pay for our sin. That, that is a logical outcome of this view. I'm not saying that people who believe in millions of years are not saved. I'm just saying this is a logical outcome of their belief system if they were more consistent. So you see, if the millions of years view were correct, there's a lot of a scripture that you have to tear out as non-historical. And there's something wrong with this picture because science is fallible. It's always changing. I mean, there are people who will rebuke me and tell me the Bible is not a scientific textbook. And I will reply, well, thank goodness, because textbooks always go out of date every few years. I'd rather let the Bible, the science catch up with the Bible rather than reinterpret all these different parts, not just Genesis, but lots of the New Testament have to go as well if evolution were true. Now, here's a question then. If, if the fossils came after sin, which is a biblical teaching, what could have caused them? Well, there are three chapters in Genesis that would explain what caused uh, the fossils, and that's the flood of Noah's day that covered the whole globe. And Jesus, as you see, affirmed this as a historical event. In this passage, he tells you the flood happened and that Noah was a real man and the ark was a real boat, although you might say it's more like an ocean liner because it's longer than a football field. But see, Jesus said this was a real event. So let's compare the two uh, pictures here. First of all, I'll give you the Darwinian picture. This is what, have, what the school books tell you. This is from an Australian uh, grade 11 biology textbook. It tells you how the fossils form. Uh, first of all, it tells you the fishy uh, um, dies <clears throat> and it sinks to the bottom. And you see over millions of years how the mountains are eroded away and the silt is washed into the ocean and slowly buries the fish over millions of years. That's the textbook picture. This is the Darwinian picture. Now, can you tell me anything wrong with this picture? Do some real science, you know. What happens to a fish when it dies? Can you tell me that one? It floats, exactly. This is what happens to it. Well, hang on. If this picture is true, and obviously is, this picture doesn't make any sense at all. The kids have been taught a load of nonsense. And you don't need to be a PhD to know that. And what happens to a floating dead fish? decomposes it, it's scavenged by everything else. This is not going to produce a fossil. Now, how would you get a fossil? Here's an alternative view. What you do is you uh, have the fish swimming around, then you have the flood erupting, and the Bible tells us the fountains of the great deep burst for something happened in the ocean, the deep ocean, before the 40, night, 40 days and 40 nights of rain, according to the Bible. And when you have um, something erupting like that, you're going to have these huge underwater mudslides. They're called turbidity currents, and they would go so fast that no fish can escape. So here the poor fish is going to be buried and suffocate, but the thing is the scavengers can't get to it. And also the weight will hold the skeleton in place. So even if the soft parts rot away, uh, the bones will stay in place and will be replaced with minerals from the mud, you see. So to get this sort of fossil, you have to bury it quickly. Not the way the textbook tells you. Let's look at some examples of that. This is a mother ichthyosaur. Now, ichthyosaur is a reptile version of a dolphin. And this comes from the Creation magazine that I'll be talking about later as well. Now, I can tell you this is about seven feet long or so. And it's definitely a mother ichthyosaur because here she is giving birth here. Notice the baby almost has finished being born. Now, was this thing lying on the ocean floor giving birth over millions of years, do you think? Well, I've heard of long, difficult labor, but really... uh, <clears throat> and some of you might keep fish in an aquarium or a fish tank. Can anyone do that? Now, do fish eat quickly or slowly, do you think? Quickly? Okay, so what do you think of this picture here? Here's a fish in the middle of his lunch. Now, can you imagine going to McDonald's and getting your cholesterol burger and you go chomp and then suddenly you're fossilized in this position? 
This is how quickly it must have happened. And you see, this is so well preserved, you can see the soft parts as well. So, so again, the fossils that we have show evidence of being buried quickly. And on the land, we see the same thing too. Look at these fighting dinosaurs. We think of, of if dinosaurs are in their fight and there's something which is endangering them, they're going to break up and run away, aren't they? But here they, they, were, they were surprised by something so quick that they didn't have a chance to break up their fight. They were, they, were, they were grappling with each other and they were buried in this position. It's really quite amazing. And then we find in the dinosaur bones, we find soft tissues, which is very surprising for people. Uh, they didn't expect to find anything soft in the dinosaur bones because they believed it was millions of years old. And yet we're finding, see here is a blood vessel. Under a micro- microscope, you see the blood cells in it. And we find DNA and proteins in dinosaur bones. And here's a problem for evolutionists. As the discoverer, Dr. Mary Schweitzer said, uh, when you think about it, the laws of chemistry and biology and everything else we know is say it should be gone, it should be degraded completely. If they were 65 million years old, they should be gone. But what if they were only a few thousand years old, which is more likely? This is what the evidence points to, that these have not been around for more than a few thousand years, not millions of years. And over and over again, we're, fi- we're finding all these examples of things that can be formed really quickly and not slowly. Now, if you want to know a bit more, here's a great little book. It's actually a book for the whole family. Even though it looks like a kid's book, it's actually sort of an adult's book disguised as a kid's book. How do you use the Bible to understand the rock record around us? It's a very, a very entertaining book and very instructive as well. And here's another one for you. Uh, why should we take the Bible at face value? How do we know the days are ordinary days? I mean, people want to say the days were long periods of time, but then what about the fourth commandment? Tell me about that. It tells you that you work for six days and rest for one because God made everything in six days and rest for one. So if the days were long periods of time, would we have to work for six million years and rest for one million years? No, not really. I just want to remind you of something that Jesus told Nicodemus, if I told you earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? So you understand, if if the church in America doesn't trust the Bible on earthly things like creation in six days and a global flood, why should the world believe it on heavenly things? Like Jesus is the son of God or marriage is a man and a woman. And we're supposed to be ready with an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that is in you. See, Christian faith is not a blind faith. We're supposed to have reasons for what we believe. And Jesus himself said the greatest commandment was to love the Lord your God with your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. Not to turn your brains off when you get in the church. That's not the way it should be. Atheists will try to tell you that's what it is, but that's not the way the Bible tells us. We're supposed to engage our mind uh, when we're Christians. And one thing, unfortunately, what happens is a lot of people in the wider church in the western world they get asked these sorts of questions like if god made things and who made god and uh, how do you fit dinosaurs into the bible how do you get different races from adam and eve and where did cain get his wife when he wasn't able (laughs) and this is all answered in the book that pastor steve mentioned right at the beginning the creation answers book uh, what steve mentioned here uh, which has 60 or so questions and 20 chapters, including those ones. And it's part of a, a starter pack, which has my first book, Refuting Evolution, which is ideal for a high school student because it addresses the evidence in the high school textbook and shows why creation makes more sense and evolution doesn't. And it's got a free DVD there as well. So it's, like a, re- it's a real Jewish bargain, I'd say. And here's what Dr. Mike Adams said. It's quite an interesting statement here from a professor, a a Christian university professor. He's at a secular university, and and, uh, they don't like him much there because he's he's an outspoken Christian. He says, if Christianity dies in America, it'll not be for a lack of evidence of its truthfulness. It'll be for a lack of dissemination of the evidence. And that's the one reason we have these resources there to help the church disseminate the truth of Christianity. And one new one we have is called Christianity for Skeptics, which has uh, not only things about creation, but for instance, how do we know the Bible's the word of God and not just the word of man? 
How do you answer the claims of Islam and Hinduism and other false religions? That's all in there too. Now, last thing I wanted to major section is about the issue of the design of things. I hopefully, uh, by now, I've explained why this is not a side issue. I had to talk about the age of things. Uh, first of all, because the gospel depends on the fact that Adam brought sin. So the last Adam brought res- resurrection from the dead. But also Darwin started off as a geologist before he was a biologist. And it was this whole idea of millions of years in geology that led to millions of years in biology. Um, so let's now talk about the design of things. That's what Darwin's most famous for, for undermining the idea that things have been designed. But even his disciple Dawkins says, biology is the study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. Well, maybe they have this appearance because that is the reality, as uh, the Apostle Paul told us. <clears throat> the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so they are without excuse. Now, that's a pretty sta- strong statement, without excuse. Dawkins and Darwin have no excuse for denying the creation because of uh, what is in creation. They, they, they should know there's a creator, but they willfully reject this position. So let's look at this. Well, for instance, we make things ourselves. We're made in God's image. We can make things to some extent. So how do we know something like a jet plane has been designed? Well, for one thing, it has lots of correct components. But you realize that it's made up 100% of non-flying parts. So how does this become a flying machine? How do I get back to Atlanta? Well, the answer is they are all organized correctly. So you've got correct components, but also correct organization. And when you have organization, you know there is an organizer. Now compare living things to man-made things. Well, living things are far more complicated because living things can copy themselves. See, the jumbo jet can't copy itself. Now, the Boeing factory can make lots of jumbo jets, but it won't make you another Boeing factory. Okay? Uh, a photocopier will copy documents for you, but it won't make you another photocopier. But living things can make copies of themselves. I mean, your kids are sort of like copies of you. And uh, on a smaller scale, your body is made up of, of about 100 trillion cells, and your cells are copying themselves. And that's how your body grows and how it repairs itself, because your cells are making copies of themselves. And they are frightfully complicated. Even a so-called simple cell is very, very complicated, far more complicated than a man-made machine, because nothing that we make can copy itself. So let's uh, work out how did this cell get there. Evolutionists believe that it got there by a primordial soup and some lightning bolts and, and strong sunlight, and it turned this primordial goo into uh, a, a, a complicated living cell like this. So let's test this idea. What I got here is a frog in a blender. Now, what if I, if I turn the switch on, what happens? I'm adding energy to it, right? I'm going to test whether energy is going to help make organization. Does it actually do it? Here's what happens. Okay, what's the result of adding energy to my frog? A frog smoothie. (laughs) So why did the frog die? It's because it was disorganized. You see, all components are still there. Do you think if I left this going for millions of years, a frog's going to hop out of there again? It's not going to work that way because you can't get the organization back. Energy is not going to do it. And in fact, no germ will grow in there. You know, you could can this and sterilize it and you seal it up and you can eat this many years later. And the reason you don't get food poisoning is because no germ will grow in there. Even though you have all the chemicals for life, you're never gonna get a germ growing in there unless the seal got broken and it got in from outside. That's when you'll get the germ growing in there, but not from within. 
So think about this. Every time you eat canned food and don't get food poisoning, you realize, you show that evolution doesn't make sense because real science says life came only from life. Evolution says life came from non-living chemicals. But then your canned food is an ideal laboratory to test whether evolution is going to make sense, and it never happens there. So the evolution is, is a faith position, but a blind faith position, not a scientific position. So important to realize that evolution really has nothing to do with real science and a lot to do with their belief system that they don't want to acknowledge their creator. Now let's look at uh, what's required even for a so-called simple cell to work. Now one thing we need lots of is energy. Now in the cells, the energy is provided by this stuff called ATP. It's a complicated molecule, but it's, this is the energy currency of life. And your body makes its own weight in this stuff every day and consumes it. And it's made by the tiniest motor in the universe. This animated sequence shows the ATP synthase enzyme in operation. The animation is based on an incredible series of scientific discoveries. Only the colors show artistic license. ATP, or adenosine triphosphate, is the energy currency of the cell. ATP is produced by a tiny molecular rotary motor, rotating it up to 7,000 RPM. These are so small that 100,000 would fit side by side in a millimeter. A current of protons drives the motor, unlike man-made electric motors which use electrons. This portion of the enzyme is where adenosine diphosphate is combined with a phosphate ion in the presence of a catalyst to produce ATP, which is then released, making way for the next cycle. A top view of the enzyme shows the sequential operation. Almost every biochemical process in your body requires ATP. Such a nanomachine exhibits all the characteristics of super-intelligent design. ATP is vital for life, and many of these motors were needed before the first living cell could exist. An evolutionary impossibility. Now, there are also other machines inside your cell. This is inside each of your 100 trillion cells. It has thousands of those motors whirring around, producing your energy molecule that you need. You know, cyanide works by stopping that happening. Okay, And you see, that shows you how important those things are because you're dead very quickly if they weren't working, which means they're essential for any living thing to arise. And here's another motor inside each of our cells as well, another very important one that we have. Inside a living cell is an amazing transportation system. Proteins have to be delivered to the correct part of the cell to perform their intended functions. This animation, based on a lot of clever research over a number of years, shows how it happens. Highways made of microtubules are assembled by interlocking proteins, each manufactured in accordance with the coded instructions on the cell's DNA. Marching along a microtubule is the kinesin motor, the hero of our story, carrying a huge sack of proteins to be delivered to a predetermined place in the cell. Here, the proteins will be released to fulfill their functions. A kinesin linear motor uses one ATP to provide the energy for each step and takes 125,000 steps to cover one millimeter. This amazing machine shows all the hallmarks of design. But you see, not only do we, do we have the machines, but thinking back to the, the, uh, the aeroplane I showed you, you know what would really prove it was designed is if you found the instruction manual for building it in the glove box. Wouldn't that be really a clincher? But this is what we have in our cells. We actually have the instruction manual to build those machines. And it's a famous DNA molecule, or National Dyslexia Association, well, you actually deoxyribonucleic acid, okay. Is that this, actually, this is the instruction manual to build the machines I showed you, and it makes you who you are. 
And what I mean by instruction manual, this has the information the, uh, to build you. And in fact, if the information in each of your hundred trillion cells was written out in paper and ink, it would take a thousand Bible-sized books to fill. That's the information in each of your cells. Or if you like, about three gigabytes. That's a lot of information. And of course we know a book requires an author and a program requires a programmer. So what does it say about the programming and books of information in our DNA? It surely points to a master programmer who programmed all this. And also DNA provides a way of copying this information to the next generation, which is why your kids look like you, you see, because the information is also copied on the DNA. Now. DNA uh, is, is, is information, and, and again, like the books, you see, the books, think about the books, they're written in ink, they're on paper, but the information did not come from the ink molecules. You could spill ink on a page, and it's not going to produce a book. No, what you have to do is a mind has to organize those ink molecules into letters, then words, and then phrases and sentences and paragraphs, you see? But it didn't come from within the ink molecules. And same with the information in DNA. It doesn't come from the chemicals of the DNA. Again, the information depends on how these chemicals are arranged, what order they're in. It doesn't come from the chemistry itself any more than the book comes from the ink molecules. It is information is imposed from outside the DNA and the ink. And the thing is, information doesn't mean much unless you can read it. For instance, um, my books won't mean much to you unless you read English. Like, for instance, a gift is a good thing to have, isn't it? You're right with a gift? It's something you get for free, okay? Uh, but if you're Germans, would you like a gift, you think? Because in German, gift means poison. Now, back in New Zealand, where I lived for a long time, I met a German guy who said that New Zealand, he, he thought when he first came to New Zealand, New Zealanders have strange customs because they try to poison their best friends and relatives at Christmas time. See, they see the importance of getting the right language or you get the wrong message. And same with DNA, you have to decode the DNA to get the right protein message because DNA codes for all the proteins in your body. And if the, the language wasn't right, you get the wrong proteins and you'd be dead. And this is how it decodes the proteins. This animation demonstrates how the digital information encoded within DNA is used to direct protein synthesis. This is a DNA double helix containing the digital code which directs the cell in all aspects of operation. And here we see a protein complex called an RNA polymerase traveling down the DNA strand. As it moves down the strand, it carefully unwinds the DNA, preparing it for transcription. Inside the polymerase, we see a single-stranded copy of the original instructions being assembled as individual bases are positioned and added to the growing strand. A stop code marks the end of the protein specification, at which point this copy, known as a messenger RNA transcript, exits the polymerase and heads towards a two-part chemical manufacturing machine called the ribosome. While the messenger RNA moves towards the ribosome, transfer RNA molecules attached to specific amino acids in preparation for assembly. As the messenger RNA transcript passes through the ribosome, the process of translation begins. Using the instructions encoded on the messenger RNA as a template, the transfer RNA molecules align specific sequences of bases to corresponding amino acids, creating a protein chain. As this chain exits the ribosome, it is met by chaperones which prevent premature folding while escorting the protein to a barrel-shaped machine called a chaperonin. This machine helps fold the protein into the precise shape required to perform its function. Although it is unclear how the chaperonin achieves this, we do know that accurate folding is essential in order for the protein to accomplish its intended function.
Once the protein is complete, it is released into the cytoplasm to do its job. So a lot of um, design to decode your DNA and make the right proteins. And this actually leads to a very serious problem for evolution. You know what a chicken and egg problem is, do you? Which came first, the chicken or the egg? You know, the Bible tells us the chicken was created on day five, so that's an easy answer. Uh, but for evolutionists, there's a problem because a chicken lays an egg and an egg hatches a chicken, and which then lays an egg, okay, it's a problem. And with uh, this is a problem for evolution too because you know, the DNA is useless unless it's decoded by the decoding machines. But the instructions to build those decoding machines are on the DNA, which can't be read without already existing decoding machines. So the question is, which came first, the decoding machines or the DNA instructions to build the decoding machines? So you see a problem there for evolution, and it's worse than it looks because we have this as well, because the decoding machines use energy, which means they use ATP, but the ATP is, read, is made by motors. But to build those motors, you need the instructions on the DNA and decoding machines that use ATP read by motors. So what do you call a three-way chicken and egg problem? Because that's what you have here, really. You see, this is a problem for evolution. You have to get all this uh, working together and coordinated for life to, to even start. And if you want to see the animations and show the animations of, uh, to people, uh, this uh, DVD has all those animations on. We made those animations ourselves because they're a great, great outreach tool uh, to show these. Now, one last thing I want to do is mention the whole idea of evolution, what it's supposed to be about. Is the evolution says that all living things came from a single cell, which came from a primordial soup. So I call this from goo to you, the other zoo. And this means information must go uphill because a primordial soup doesn't have any information. And even the simplest cell has about 600 kilobytes of information. We have about 3,000 times more uh, because we've got three gigabytes. Because obviously we have things that a bacterium, a germ doesn't have. A bacterium doesn't have a brain or, or lungs or blood or muscles or bones or skin or eyes or ears, all the things that we have. So we have far more instructions and information than the germ has, okay? So if evolution is true, information must be going uphill. Now, what do we actually observe? Let's look at a few examples. Here is what Darwin thought was evolution in action. Now, just this diagram here, what I've got is doggies here with a medium length of fur because on the belly is meant to be a gene, a bit of your DNA, and the left side has instructions to say make short fur. On the right side, the instructions say make long fur, and you have both of them, you have medium fur. Now, you have your information in pairs. You have one half from your mother, one half from your father. And when you marry and have kids, you pass on one half, your spouse passes on the other half. So your kids look like both of you. So when these dogs marry and have pups, they pass on one or the other. Like they could both pass on their short fur gene and get a short fur dog. They could pass on one of each. Now, what happens if they both pass on a long fur gene? It would look like this. You see, Darwin thought this was evolution because he didn't know genetics. It was actually a creationist, Gregor Mendel, who discovered genetics, and Darwin ignored him. In fact, most of the branches of modern science were founded by creationists, and that's something you don't hear very much of, but it's true. You see, Darwin didn't realize that the information was already there in the parents, so there's nothing new there. God had already put the information there, and all that's happened is it's sorted out into the different uh, varieties we have here, so there's nothing new there at all. Now, the same sort of principle can explain uh, where we, why we have different so-called skin colors in people today. But I'd actually rather say that we don't really have skin colors. We have different shades of one color. You see, I'm not a white man. Here's a white piece of paper, right? No problem. I'm not a white man, okay? And black people are not black people. They're really dark brown people because we actually have the same stuff. It's called melanin. 
Now, melanin is very dark, almost black, dark brown and black. Okay, if you have lots of it, you'll be a so-called black person. If you have very little of it, you are a so-called white person, but you're really dark brown and light brown, and you have medium in between, okay? And this could all have come from Adam and Eve if Adam and Eve were a mixture, had a mixture of genes. Now, what I've got here, I've drawn Adam and Eve with an olive complexion, which is what I believe they were. Because they could have the genes for lots of melanin, which I've given you capital letter here, that says make lots of melanin. Uh, the small letters say make little bits of melanin. And you have them both, you get a medium complexion. Now, you see, in one generation, these two could have could pass all their light skin genes onto their son and all their dark skin genes onto their daughter here, and these guys are a little bit in between. So you see, in one generation, if Adam and Eve had the right mixture that God put there in the beginning, all the different skin shades we see today could happen in one generation. It doesn't take long. As long as I think Adam and Eve were the ultimate mongrels. They had the right, all the mix, all the, the, the stuff that we see today is it was mixed up in their genome. In fact, it happens today. If you have biracial couples, they can often have kids of different skin shades. It happens quite a lot, actually. So here's an example of twins. These are white and a black twin. See, one twin is blonde and blue-eyed and very fair. The other is dark-haired, dark-eyed, and dark-skinned, you see? So, so these are twin girls because both their parents had a light brown English mother and a dark brown Jamaican father. So the parents had the mixture put into them. And again, in one generation, they have these nice little twin girls, you see, who are twins with different skin shades. And this is an echo of what could have happened with our first parents how all different people groups could have come from Adam and Eve. And here they are, these girls are a bit older now, about seven years old now. Now let's go back to these dogs again. And imagine these dogs go through the Ice Age. Who is going to do better in the Ice Age, do you think? The furry ones are going to do better in the ice age. So the cold, the other ones are going to die of the cold. They're going to, they, they won't be able to survive to pass their genes on. So the only ones that survive are these furry ones. Which means the next generation is all going to have long fur. <clears throat> now this is natural selection. You see, natural selection is a fact, but Darwin didn't think of it. First, creationists thought of it before Darwin. See, what's natural selection actually doing? It's culling information. It's not creating anything new. It's going the opposite direction from what evolution requires. Because if these dogs go to a warmer climate, they can overheat because they've no longer got the information for short fur. So this process could go for millions of years, and it's not going to go uphill. It's always going downhill. This is not going to turn bacteria into biologists or prokaryotes into professors, for that matter. It's going in the opposite direction. So the only game left in town for evolutionists is mutation. Now, mutation is a typo when genes are copied. Now, we actually have error protecting. We have editing mechanisms in our, in our cells to try and stop mutation, just like your word processor often has a typo correction, doesn't it? Automatic spelling or typo correction. Well, why do you do that? Can't you get a better newsletter or a book if you have some typos in it, do you think? No, obviously typos are going to make things worse. And the same when you have a typo in your genes. Here is one example. The poor bulldog has to be born by C-section. It's no good for the poor bulldog. And this one here, TNR, or totally naked rooster. Now, Chick-fil-A would love it because no need to pluck it. But the poor rooster will fry in summer and freeze in winter because he's no longer got the information for feathers, you see. So mutations corrupt things. They cause lots of diseases. This is not the way to go uphill. In fact, we've shown no way of getting the new information that evolution requires. And Richard Dawkins was asked about this. And don't forget, he's sort of the world champion of Darwinism and atheism. Professor Dawkins, can you give an example of a genetic mutation or an evolutionary process which can be seen to increase the information in the genome? 
So as you see, he couldn't answer the question. He's also said things like, evolution has been observed. It's just that it hasn't been observed while it's happening. <laughs> and this one, you see, he admits Darwin made it possible to be an intellectually fulfilled atheist. You see, he needs evolution as a crutch for his atheistic faith. So what are we supposed to do about that? Well, the Apostle Paul told us we demolish arguments. I didn't say demolish people. I said demolish the arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. You see, we're not about just bashing evolution or even proving design of things. We want to point people to Jesus Christ as the creator and the savior. That's the aim of our ministry, is a Christ-centered ministry to do that. And that's why our resources are all Christ-centered. We want to point to, to the true creator of the universe who died for our sins and paid the penalty we deserve. And one of the things we have to help you this is our creation magazine. Who gets this one? Anyone get this one? I didn't see a few of you guys get it then. Um, here's a case of, of one person who, who was led to the Lord. The Holy Spirit used the creation magazine to lead this man to realize there is a God. There is a creator. All the evolution stuff he learned was not true. And therefore, he looked for an alternative. And every issue presents the gospel. And here's a, a case why it's really a family magazine. Because here's a lady who said it encourages me as a believer. But also, I can teach my children the truth of creation, which you're not getting in the schools and to witness to my unbelieving friends. I mean, because most witnessing is done one-on-one -on -one nowadays. I think the days of Billy Graham and his big crusades, it's, it's a thing of the past, sadly. Uh, most witnessing is done one-on-one. -on -one, so why doesn't it happen more often? I think because people think they haven't got the answers. People think science has disproved the Bible. What I do if someone tells me um, what, what is, where does Cain get his wife or whatever, um, here is, is a way of getting the answers for these things. So what we're going to allow you to do now, we've got these uh, clipboards with this sign-up sheet on here. And to make it as easy as possible for you, what we've got is a, is a way to fill out this uh, name and address because we have to send it to you. We have to know where you live, okay? And the thing is, notice the coupon number here. This is a match for that. So what you guys need to do, if you want to subscribe, is to take this coupon off. There's a little a perforation as well. You can probably do it more neatly than I am. See the perforation here? Take this coupon off and give it to these nice people who are helping me out at the book table there. And there's a free gift involved as well. And of course, all gifts are free by definition. And we're talking about an English gift, not a German gift, okay? And the gifts involved, if you pay for one year, you get a back issue for the Creation Magazine. If you pay for three years, you get a back issue plus a free DVD, another gift. And that's a real Jewish bargain there. Now, also, we've done recently, we have actually got a digital version. Just this year, we started a digital one because I know families fight over Creation Magazine. But this is a way you can put it onto five different things like laptops or tablets, your know, iPads, all these fancy things that you people have these days. But the family can read it all at once and you can give it to your, uh, your grandchildren as well. I mean, it's a great Christmas gift for anyone. And let's face it, when we see people leaving the church, this is the way to immunize the church, uh, the, the, the families from losing their young people because if you can evolution-proof your children with these sorts of things here. And this is what we're really on about. Now, here's an example of one of the articles we have. It's called How Dating Methods Work. And it's not about how, how um, boys meet girls. It's about how old things are, okay? And every issue has an interview with a Bible-believing scientist in it, you see. So we want to show that you can believe the Bible and be a good scientist. And it's very interesting. One of my favorite things is how humans are copying the designs of nature, See, evolutionists have taught that dragonflies were primitive insects, and now the, the top engineers are trying to design vehicles that, that model themselves on the way the dragonflies fail. Because we're learning from what God has done in nature. It's a fascinating topic there. And every issue has a kid's section in it too. I start them young myself, as you can see. And if you, if you do have kids, here's another idea for you. It's a, it's a, a pack of five full-color hardcover books and it's a pack of them for under $30 that's a real, again a real bargain because you don't find these sorts of kids books brand new like that anywhere else I think even Goodwill wouldn't be as good as this and 
other things here which would be interesting for you. We've got a pack of DVDs, eight DVDs for $50. And again, that's cheaper than Walmart. And it's, it's got all this good creation uh, material that you can, suggest, you can uh, tell your friends about. You can show, have a DVD showing at your house. Uh, here's, a, if you really want to start something serious, there's a, a huge pack here which has loads of books and DVDs. And the thing is about this is that you can, again, lend them out to people, share this. Because this information is too good to keep to yourself. And th- as was said, um, Christianity will die in America only if this information is not disseminated. And that's what I think is, is lacking in Australia and New Zealand and America is, in fact, the only things people hear is evolution. That's why most people believe it. That's all they've been taught. And this is why we exist to try to, uh, to counteract uh, this one-sided indoctrination into evolution. So I, I thank you very much for letting me speak uh, to your great congregation here. So thank you again.